Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door. In as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. H.R. McMaster is a senior fellow at both the Stanford University's Hoover Institution and at its Graduate School of Business. He was a career U.S. Army officer and was the National Security Advisor to President Trump. He is the author of the just-published book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. I just sat down with H.R. to talk about his book and what the U.S. needs to do to defend itself in an extraordinarily complex world. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. General McMaster, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is an honor to have you on the show. Hey, Michael, the honor's mine. It's great to be with you. Let me start with a couple of points for our listeners. First, I want to congratulate you on your new book, Battlegrounds. The Fight to Defend the Free World. I've read it. It's terrific. I think it's a must read for anyone interested in national security. And I actually see it as a reference book for understanding the key issues. And, and I see myself you know, pulling it down off the shelf from time to time when I'm thinking about something, when I have to talk about something, when I'm writing something. So I think it's a very 
important contribution to the literature on the threats and challenges we face as a nation. So thank you. Thank you very much for writing it. Well, Michael, thanks. Thanks so much. I mean, with somebody with your background, experience and knowledge to, to endorse it like that, that means a lot to me that you judge it to have been worthwhile. Thank you. And then second, having you with us to talk about your book is a perfect way for us to kick off what is for us going to going to be a new series on the key national security issues facing the United States. The series, which we're going to work very hard to be nonpartisan, will run between the election and the inauguration. And finally, I should mention to my listeners that this episode is going to run the day after the election, but that you and I are taping it the Friday before the election. So you and I have no idea what's going to happen on election day. So people should just know that as they're, as they're listening to our conversation. And I think that's actually a good thing for our conversation because what I want to do at the end of the day is get your sense of what is going to face the president who is sworn in on January 20th, no matter who that person happens to be. So HR, before we get to the individual issues that I want to walk through with you, I'd love to ask you why you decided to write the book that you did. You obviously could have written, you know, a very different kind of book and I'm sure that there were publishers who were encouraging you to do that, but you chose not to do that. You chose to write a, ser- a very serious look at the the threats and challenges that face us as a nation. Why did you take the route that you did? Well, my, Michael, th- thank you. I you know, I'd served in in the army for 34 years and and so as I transitioned to what is my only second career in my adult life, uh, I made out what is probably quite predictably a mission statement for myself. And that was in my second career to try to to deepen our understanding of the most crucial challenges we face as a way to, to better inform the American people uh, about uh, foreign policy and national security issues with the hope that if we learn more about these challenges that we face, we can demand better, demand a better foreign policy from our elected leaders. But then also, I, I hope that the book and the work that I'm doing around the book will help bring Americans back together, right? Because I, I don't think any of these issues should be partisan in nature. And, and so what, I, what I'm hoping for is that a deeper understanding of these challenges we face, and, and I think what should be our common commitment to try to, to build a better future for generations to come, uh, will, will help bring our country back together, at least around foreign policy and national security issues. So HR, what are the main themes of the book. What do you want readers to walk away remembering? Well, one, one of the themes that runs through the book is this idea of strategic narcissism. And, and I, I think this is one of the reasons why our competence, our ability to compete, at least in the post-Cold War period, has been significantly diminished. And by strategic narcissism, I mean our tendency to define the world only in relation to us and then to assume that what we decide to do or decide not to do is decisive to achieving a favorable outcome. And of course, you know, Michael, with your long experience in intelligence, this is flawed because it's self-referential and it doesn't acknowledge, you know, the, the degree to which others have agency and influence and authorship over the future. And so the book is then a, an argument, an argument for cultivating what my friend and, and great historian Zachary Shore has termed strategic empathy. And, and this is an effort, an effort to understand better what drives and constrains the other, especially adversaries, rivals, and, and enemies. And, and what drives and constrains the other oftentimes is, is ideology and emotion 
and aspirations. And so the, the theme in the book that, uh, that, that, also, that also is important is, is an effort to understand how the recent past produced the present as the first step in making a projection into the future. So, so the book is an argument for the understanding of history, uh, an appreciation for the, the complex causality of events, and, and a focus on understanding these crucial challenges we're facing from the perspective of others. Yeah, you know, that's one of the that's one of the main jobs of the intelligence community, right? Is to is to give our decision makers the point of view of the other guy, right? The guy sitting across the table from you, the guy sitting across the battlefield from you, but what's the other guy thinking? What are his constraints? What are his interests? I and mean, that's extraordinarily important, right? Right. And it's you know, of course it's not a new idea. It goes back to Sun Tzu. And, but I think it's, it, we, we started to neglect the importance of this, especially in the post-Cold War period, a, a period that I, that I describe as a period of, of over-optimism, over-optimism that led to complacency and, and a bit of hubris. Uh, and, and this was all, this over-optimism was in large measure a setup, I think, a setup for significant disappointments uh, in, in the 2000s. Disappointments, of course, associated with the mass murder attacks of of September 11, 2001, but also the unanticipated length and difficulty of wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq, and and of course followed by a financial crisis. And so, I think it was in the 2000s that this emotional impetus behind our foreign policy shifted from over optimism to pessimism, and from maybe a, a tendency to underappreciate the risks and 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 costs of action to a tendency to underappreciate the risks and costs of inaction. Yeah. And I think that strategic narcissism is, is the cause really in, in both cases. You know, the other thing that strikes me when you talk about the importance of history is I always thought sitting in deputies meetings that it would have been incredibly valuable to actually take a few minutes in every deputies meetings or principals meetings to talk about the history of the issue, just to review how you got from point A to point B. And we never did that in multiple administrations in which I served, but I always thought that that would have been really valuable. Well, Michael, you're absolutely right about that. And, and I'll tell you, one of, the, one of the great gifts I had, I think, before earlier in my career was the opportunity to read, think, study, and write history. And, and the first book I wrote was Dereliction of Duty, which is a story about how and why Vietnam became an American war. And, and one of the, the lessons I learned from that study of that history was that it was important to understand problems and challenges holistically before leaping into action. And so as I, when I came in as national security advisor, I did my best to at least avoid making the same mistakes. And, and we put in place a principal small group framing session. I know that's a mouthful, but as we, as we developed these strategies for the most crucial challenges we were facing, we began with this framing session that was organized around a five-page paper that included only really the description of the challenge, how we got to where we are, a bit of the history of it, and then an inventory of our vital interests that were at stake, a view of that challenge through the lens of those vital interests, and draft overarching goals and more specific objectives, followed by assumptions, assumptions about the degree to which we and like-minded partners have agency or influence over this challenge, and then and then an inventory of of obstacles to progress and opportunities that we could exploit. And that's it. And then we we had a discussion about the nature of the challenge first. The policy coordinating committee, Michael, which you know are the right. are the real workers who are going to work on this project, they're listening in. So they're getting, they're hearing 
the cabinet at the cabinet level, a discussion about the nature of the problem and then and a refinement of it. Once that part of the meeting was done, then we shifted to a discussion of, okay, hey, what are your ideas? How do we integrate the elements of national power and efforts of like-minded partners to overcome these obstacles and exploit these opportunities? Then they got to hear the Treasury Secretary say, well, we have you know, we, we have economic and financial tools available, but those ought to be combined with diplomacy and maybe law enforcement efforts. And then you get these this rich discussion that then the policy coordinating committee can really run with. And so I, I think that, I hope that's a, a process that will be sustained. I don't think my successor hung on to it, by the way. So it will, it will have to be resurrected um, at, at some point if it, if it is deemed as useful by a well, future national security advisor. Yeah, well, it certainly sounds useful. Okay, so what I'd love to do, HR, is go through the individual issues. And what I'd like to do is just throw one out, get you to frame it, you know, what's the threat or challenge that we face? You know, what's the history? How did we get here? What's our interest that's that's at stake? And how do you think we as a nation need to go about dealing with it? And let's start with the big one. Let's start with the big enchilada, China. Right. Well, well Michael, I think China is a great example of strategic narcissism at work and especially this assumption that we clung to for too long, that, that China, having been welcomed into the international order, would play by the rules, uh, would, would would liberalize its economy, and as it prospered, it would liberalize its form of government. Government, that, Of course, that's not true, and it's not true because we undervalue the degree to which emotions and ideology drive and constrain the Chinese Communist Party. And, and what, I, what I argue in, in battlegrounds is that the party is driven mainly by fear, fear of losing its exclusive grip on power and, and an associated ambition, the ambition to achieve national rejuvenation for China to take center stage in the world again after the, the tragedy of, as they portrayed as the, the century of, of, of humiliation. And it, and it is that, that combination of fear and aspiration that is driving the party's effort to extend and tighten its exclusive grip on power internally. This is why there are over a million people in concentration camps in Xinjiang and there's a, there's a, a, a campaign of cultural genocide ongoing. This is why the party is extending their repressive arm to Hong Kong and perfecting their technologically enabled Orwellian surveillance police state. How's that for a lot of adjectives? Good. But yep. This is what we're seeing. Uh, and then and then what is even more troubling, I, I think, is the party's now effort to export its authoritarian mercantilist model uh, through, uh, through a number of strategies that aim to create servile relationships uh, with, with countries uh, and then ultimately through economic means, as well as the growth in the People's Liberation Army's capabilities to establish areas of primacy across the Indo-Pacific region that exclude uh, the United States right. and then to challenge the United States and the free world globally. And if China succeeds, I mean, our, you know, our world uh, will be less free, less prosperous and less safe. So the stakes are high and, and it's past time for, for us to recognize the need to compete effectively against this this very integrated uh, and, and pernicious form of aggression that the party's engaged in. What would a, an effective China strategy look like to you? Well, I think the Trump administration, if it gets credit for anything, should get credit for a fundamental shift in our, in our policy toward China, one that was long overdue and one that I think is fundamentally sound. And, and this is the idea that we have to compete. And it was under the strategy of, of cooperation and engagement that, that the Chinese Communist Party was emboldened. Competition doesn't need to lead to confrontation. In fact, quite the opposite. And I think we have returned to arenas of competition involving 
countering more effectively China's campaign of sustained industrial espionage against us, uh, countering a, a range of, of Chinese unfair trade and economic practices, doing so in large measure through effective international cooperation, for example, establishing better standards for infrastructure investment internationally, the law enforcement actions and investigations that have gone on uh, against APT-10, the main hacking arm of the Chinese Communist Party, I think have been very effective as well, combined with, with sanctions and, and other actions against, uh, against uh, the aggressive arms of the, of the party. But I really, I think, Michael, the most important thing for us to do, and I argue this in, in a chapter of Battlegrounds entitled Turning Weakness into Strength, is to, is to take what the Chinese Communist Party sees as sources of weakness, potentially for them, and turn those into our greatest strengths. What does the party fear? The party fears that, that the party fears that the, the people, the Chinese people, right, right. might have have want to have a say in how they're governed. You know, and so we should strengthen our democratic processes. The party fears rule of law. We should strengthen rule of law in, in the United States and with countries that are working to strengthen rule of law in their countries. The party fears freedom of press, freedom of the expression. We need to strengthen our authoritative sources of information and and recognize that investigative journalism uh, is a great counter. Uh, to some of these pernicious strategies that the party's pursuing. So I, I think that part, part of it is defensive, but part of it is, is more introspective and trying to, to, to maintain our competitive advantages. So HR, Russia, how do you think about Russia? Well, Russia is a significant threat to us because Putin, again, this is examining the, the assumptions of previous policies. <laughs> Putin is not going to become like the Grinch on Christmas Eve, right? His, his art's not going to get too big, sizes bigger, right. and he's not going to decide, <laughs> okay, well, maybe the future of Russia does lie more with the West and, 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 and treat uh, the United States and Europe and, and others differently. Uh, Putin is, is driven by a sense of honor lost after the breakup of, of the, the Soviet Union. He's, he's also driven by this associated uh, desire to restore Russia to national greatness. He's also cognizant, though, that he of the fact that he cannot compete with us on our own terms. And so what his theory of victory is, is to drag us all down and then to be the last man standing. And 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 the, the means that he's using to do this, I describe the Chinese approach of, of co-option, coercion, and concealment. And I use alliteration in the in, in, the, in the Russian chapters as, as well, it is a campaign of disruption, disinformation, and denial mm. uh, to try to disrupt us, uh, to disrupt our effective governance, to disrupt us economically and to use economic coercion when he can, uh, such as, as he has done uh, in, in Europe effectively from time to time and with energy dependence. Uh, and, then, and then to deny even his most egregious acts, uh, especially the sustained campaign of cyber-enabled information warfare against us, uh, which is designed to polarize us, to pit us against each other, uh, to reduce our confidence in who we are as a people and in our democratic institutions and and principles and and processes. So, so Russia is is a dangerous threat for for these reasons. And and the best way to counter it is, is the first step is to pull the curtain back on this activity, to educate ourselves about it, to to be less susceptible mm. to, to Russian information to not be our own worst enemies, as, as I think both political parties in, in many instances have, because they compromise. You know, they compromised our principles to score some partisan political points and, and in doing so make themselves vulnerable to Russian disinformation and, and propaganda. And then what about raising the cost to him of doing this? Is that an option here in terms of deterring him? Absolutely. And, and this is what I, what I advocate for in Battlegrounds is, to, is that we have to impose costs on the Kremlin, on Putin, 
uh, that exceed those that he factors in uh, at the beginning of his decision-making process. And, and I, in my, one of my last, my, my, actually my last day really in, in, a, in an Oval Office meeting was the day that President Trump decided to impose significant costs on Russia in response to the, the attempted poisoning murder of Sergei Skripal and his daughter with a, with a banned military-grade nerve agent, an act uh, that put thousands of, of, of UK citizens at, at risk. And it was at that on that occasion that uh, that we expelled the over 60 undeclared intelligence agents that hits Putin where it matters, because these are agents that were critical to his sustained campaign of subversion against us. Uh, and we imposed significant costs, additional costs on, on Russia uh, through, through sanctions and, and other actions. Uh, the closing of, of the San Francisco consulate, as, as, as you know, Michael, uh, was a major intelligence uh, collection platform uh, for the Russians here in Silicon Valley and the Bay Area. So. So, I, I mean, that, that was significant. And I think that sent a strong message. Now, after Navalny's poisoning, I, I'd like us to see, I'd like us to do the same thing, you know, and, and as he's infiltrating, um, you know, the more little green men now into Belarus, um, and as, as he continues to enable, you know, the, the serial episodes of mass homicide, that is the Syrian civil war, uh, to, to support Haftar in a way that's perpetuating violence in, in Libya. And now, of course, is, is also engaged in the Goral Karabakh, uh, that, that we continue to impose costs on the Kremlin and on Putin in particular. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with H.R. McMaster. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, HR, let's, uh, let's talk about North Korea. Give us your sense on North Korea. Well, thanks, Michael. Well, of course, it's important for us to recognize going in, right, that, that North Korea is the only communist hereditary dictatorship in the world. And it is, it is the nature of the Kim family regime uh, that, that, is, that we have to take into account when we're considering the danger that the regime poses to the world uh, if, it, if it does possess the most destructive weapons on earth. And the Kim family regime is driven mainly by this drive to, to remain in power. It is, of course, known as, as the Hermit Kingdom. It is a gulag state that fears any kind of opening to, to the world. And it is, it is a regime that across now three generations of, of dictators has been committed to unifying the Korean Peninsula under the so-called Red Banner. And I think as we look at, at, uh, at North Korea's pursuit of the most destructive weapons on Earth, we have to be at least open to the possibility that it wants those weapons to coerce the United States off the peninsula as the first step in the forcible reunification uh, of the peninsula. And, and of course, uh, th th that, would, that would be in the form of a, of a destructive war. It's also important, I think, for us to recognize that it is highly unlikely that North Korea wants nuclear weapons just to deter us. Uh, North Korea already had a very significant deterrent capability with its conventional weapons. And the fact that, that so many uh, th you know, thousands of artillery pieces are within the range of of Seoul, South Korea. And then also, I think it's important to recognize that every act of aggression on the Korean Peninsula since the North invaded the South 
in, in June of, of 1950 has been initiated by the North. And the other aspect of this problem, Michael, that is very important to consider is that if North Korea gets the weapon, is recognized as, as, a, as a nuclear power, like who doesn't get one after that, right? Does Japan starts to have a right. conversation. Right. South Korea, and by the way, North Korea never met a weapon. It didn't try to sell to somebody, exactly. including its nuclear program, until the Israeli Defense Force bombed that facility in, in 2007. So it's very dangerous. Uh, I, I think it's dangerous as well because of the ideology, again, that drives this regime. It's a warped ideology. This is the Juche ideology, which has turned deprivation into a, a sign of virtue and racial superiority. And, and these, the North Korean people have gone through generations of brainwashing. So this is a big problem, Michael. I think that the, the, the approach that, that um, is in place now, the strategy of maximum pressure, it's the best course of action. I think we have to test the thesis that maximum pressure can convince Kim Jong-un that he is safer without the weapons than he is with them. I think it will be important for whoever's sworn in uh, on January 20th, <laughs> that they recognize that we should not repeat the failed pattern of previous efforts, not allow North Korea to draw us into negotiations uh, with, with an act of aggression and, and with the demands of a big payoff up front just for the privilege of talking with them, to, to not, again, right. engage in long, drawn-out negotiations that deliver a weak agreement that he, that he immediately breaks again. So you've said something, sir, here that I think is really important because I think the conventional wisdom is that he wants these weapons for deterrence, right? That he's worried about us attacking him. But you're arguing that it's more than that, that this gets to the heart of what North Korea has always wanted, which is to reunify the peninsula, which I think is a really important point here that changes how you think about how you have to deal with him. Right. And this is this is an argument, Michael, for strategic empathy, right? The, 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 view, the view of these complex challenges from the perspective of the other. And unless you do that, you, you kind of mirror, you're, you're susceptible to mirror imaging. And of course, my, my research for the book, Dereliction of Duty, you know, that, that sensitized me to this. Right? It was in the run-up to the Vietnam War, where some of those who, who, were, who were planning the, the Vietnam strategy, developing the Vietnam strategy, they actually referred to the reasonable man theory of English common law and assumed that Ho Chi Minh would respond as the theoretical reasonable man would respond without taking into consideration uh, the, the role that the culture and, and ideology played in, in, uh, in driving and constraining the North Vietnamese leadership. So do you think at the end of the day, it's possible to convince him that he would be better off, that he would be more secure without these weapons? Yeah, you know, I, I do think it's possible. And the reason I think it's possible, because we've never really put maximum pressure on the North. And so we have this, this opportunity now. I mean, thanks really to the Tremendous work by Ambassador Nikki Haley uh, when she was at the UN. I mean, as you know, Michael, these these UN Security Council sanctions on North Korea are unprecedented in reach. The key now, though, is to is to enforce them. And of course, the key country that needs to enforce them is China. And I think if China doesn't enforce them, if China continues to be complicit with illicit financial flows into and out of the country, to continue to to, to provide uh, energy. Uh, and other materials to, to, to the north uh, that, that are limited by these sanctions, then I think it's time for us to consider secondary sanctions, you know, maybe on Chinese financial institutions. I think as we see the smuggling of, of coal and the transshipment of coal and oil and fuel, uh, I think that under Article 2, I think the president 
could use Article Two authority to interdict uh, those those ships. And as you know, Michael, this is something we can't really talk about. There are other there are other means of of of, of putting pressure on the North. And so I, I think that we haven't done we haven't done it yet. I think we have to at least test the thesis because the alternatives are so bleak of, of either accepting North Korea as, as a nuclear power and coping with with that threat or a war, right? That would be that would be very costly. So I I think it's it's worth pursuing. So, sir, let me ask you about another tough one, Iran. Right. Well, on Iran, I what I what I tell the story of in Battlegrounds, Michael, is we have to view the problem of Iran with, with two fundamental considerations foremost in our minds. The first is the ideology of the revolution and how that drives the Iranian leadership. And the Iranian leadership is the supreme leader and the guarding council and the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps. We have this fantasy, I think, Michael, that you know that the that the reformers, you know, the Republicans within Iraq are, are going to prevail. Hey, they lost. They lost. The revolutionaries are in charge. The hardliners are in charge. And whenever they put this forward, the shop window of Minister Zarif, their foreign minister, or President Rouhani, that's all you're getting is the shop window. And that ideology is it drives the Iranian regime to continue its four-decade-long proxy war against the great Satan, the United States, the little Satan, Israel, the Arab monarchies, and, and the West broadly. And so we have to consider the ideology of the regime and, and this 40-year-long proxy war. And, and, and what I argue for in, in the book is to force force the Iranian regime to make a choice. Hey, you can either be treated like a like like a, a normal nation, or you can continue to wage this proxy war, support terrorist organizations, and, and keep the, the the Middle East enmeshed in this perpetual state of sectarian civil war. And, but and the choice is yours. And to impose that choice, I think what we should not do is, is lift the, the arms embargo to the regime. What we should not do is lift any of the sanctions. And, and, and in fact, we should impose the costs on the regime to, to constrain the resources they have available to continue their proxy wars against us, but then also ultimately maybe to convince the Iranian people that they ought to have a government in place. And I'm not talking about like a 2003 regime change, but, but to a government in place that, that shifts, that shifts away from its permanent hostility to the United States, Israel, and the West. And, and I think that's the only path that, that I, I see forward. I think our policies ought to aim. Uh, to affect that that change in in the regime's permanent hostility, and, and until it does, any agreement with them it can't be trusted, and any agreement with them that that allows them to escape making that choice, like the Iran nuclear deal did, I think is to our disadvantage. So you don't see the regime changing policy on its own. You think that has to be forced internally by the Iranian people. Is that fair? Well, Michael, I I think on Iran it's important to keep. Two considerations in mind in crafting a strategy toward Iran. First of all, it, that the it's the ideology of the regime uh, that that drives their hostile behavior toward us, and we have to recognize that the, it's the supreme leader, it's the Guardian Council, it's the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps who are in charge. Right? There was a struggle, uh, you know, across uh, the the history of Iran since the since the revolution in 1979 between the Republicans and the revolutionaries. Hey, the revolutionaries won, and and we have to recognize that. Uh, the second consideration is that this regime has waged a four decade long proxy war against the great Satan, us, the little Satan, Israel, the Arab monarchies, uh, and and the West generally. And we have to to craft our strategy in recognition of this regime's permanent hostility 
to us. And of course, I, I think the best way to, to approach it and the title of the chapter in Battlegrounds is, is forcing a choice, forcing the regime to make a choice of either being a responsible nation and then being treated as such or suffering the, the consequences. And this is why I think it's very important to, to keep the arms embargo in, in place. I think it's very important to keep the sanctions in place on the, on the regime to, in the short term, reduce the resources it has available to wage this proxy war, and in the long term, hopefully convince the Iranian people to demand a change in the nature of the government such that it ceases its permanent hostility. Okay. Um, Islamic extremism, it's uh, it's waned a bit in, in the threat, but it's still there from West Africa to the Middle East, to South Asia, to Southeast Asia. How do you think about that problem long term? Well, Michael, I, I think the reason that we haven't had another attack on the, on the scale of the most devastating terrorist attack in history of September 11, 2001, is, is our tremendous intelligence professionals, our diplomats, our military, who's been engaged against this threat from jihadist terrorist organizations since 9-11. And what I'm concerned about, Michael, is that these groups, I think, are more dangerous today than they were maybe even on September 10th, 2001. And that's because, of course, those who committed the mass murder attacks against us on 9-11 were the Mujahideen alumni of the resistance to the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. Well, now the Al-Qaeda alumni, the ISIS alumni, the Lashkar-e-Taiba alumni are orders of magnitude greater. And they have access to more and more destructive capabilities. And the reason we've been safe is because we've been engaged. And now we have this narrative of ending endless wars and disengaging. Well, I think what Americans need to, 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 to know is that we are engaged so we can enable others to bear the brunt of this fight. I mean, this disengagement from Afghanistan, I think, is a, is a, is a tragedy, the way that we've gone about this. Uh, I, think, I think we should recognize the sacrifices of our, of our longest war, and in particular, that 10 of our courageous service servicemen soldiers gave their lives for for our, our 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 country our security this year but we have to also recognize that 30 afghan soldiers and police a day die defending the the freedoms that they've enjoyed since the defeat of the taliban in, in 2001 and removal of the taliban from power so i i think that that we we need to make a sustained argument to the american people for engagement with this problem of jihadist terrorism because if we don't michael we'll go back to 1998 remember when we after the embassy bombings, we yep. fired a, a few cruise missiles and called yep. it a day, right? It, that didn't yep. work out. HR, the last issue I want to ask you about is Venezuela, which I know you care about. My understanding is that when you when you arrived at the White House, you you were going over the issues and, and you kind of stumbled on Venezuela and said, hey, you know, what's going on there? It doesn't look like we're paying attention to this. Talk about Venezuela and why it's important. Well, it's, it's immensely important because this is a humanitarian catastrophe in, in Venezuela. It's a humanitarian catastrophe that's that's brought on by you know, an authoritarian regime that is denying the Venezuelan people a say in how they're governed. And so, the when we looked at the at the problem and the nature of the Maduro regime and the and the Chavista movement, uh, we concluded uh, that that this was again this a corrupt government that is using criminalized patronage networks to affect control of its people. It uses these you know these motorcycle gangs and 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 militias. Uh, to 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 overwhelm any any kind of opposition, it ended you know the the, the constitution. So we said, okay, what is, what should our goal be? Our goal should be to work with others, to work with like minded countries, to effect a restoration of constitutional rule in in Venezuela. And to do that, we felt as if we had to pursue three objectives. 
one of those objectives would be to to try to strengthen the 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 the, the opposition, right? To help the opposition come together. I think you you saw that with the, the rise of Bolsonaro. You know, who was really from the people. He's you know he's not a member of the Caracas Polo Club. You know, for right. example, I think he's somebody who can gain some traction uh, with those who have been disadvantaged now so so significantly under under Chavez and and now Maduro. The second objective would be for the people to be able to attribute their grievances back to the government, not to blame the Yankees, you know, for, uh, for example. Uh, and, and the third uh, related to that uh, would be to try to, to try to, to galvanize really popular, uh, popular support for a rest- restoration of constitutional government. And, and I think the measures we put in place were sound. Of course, they, they have proven inadequate. And I think uh, we thought that Economic sanctions would, would maybe have, they've had a significant effect, but the reason they haven't had a, a, a bigger effect is there's a huge black market uh, illicit economy uh, that, that's run by Maduro. And he uses that to sustain uh, this criminalized patronage network and, and these gangs of thugs who who really prevent any real opposition from uh, from gaining traction. But I, I think I, you know, I'm proud of what we did in this period of time. We worked very closely uh, with partners, especially in the Western Hemisphere, Mexico, uh, under the foreign minister, the great Luis Vidigare, who is a wonderful partner, uh, took, took a leading role in, in much of the work that we did. We tried to get the Organization of American States and others to do more, but it was really it was really the community of, of like-minded nations, uh, Brazil, uh, Colombia, uh, Peru, uh, Panama, Argentina. We worked very closely together on this problem and I think remain committed to trying to affect a, you know, a, a, a restoration of constitutional government in Venezuela. Sir, you've been fantastic with your time. I just want to ask you two more questions. The first is that in order to deal with all of these problems that you've talked about, you know, we need a healthy national security toolkit, healthy diplomacy, healthy intelligence capabilities, healthy military capabilities. What's your assessment sort of overall of where we are with our national security toolkit? Okay, my, I think I think we're, you know, we're in good shape thanks to the extremely dedicated civil servants and 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 military professionals, intelligence professionals who we have in, you know, across uh, our, our government. But I think what is what is needed more than anything is a higher degree of what, what I argue in battlegrounds is, is strategic competence. And that's the ability to integrate the elements of, of national power so so that so that, that they're applied in a way that are synergistic, right? And and the, and that the you know the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. I, I think at times we get it right. But most often we, we get it wrong. And our approach to these complex problems is, is fragmented. It's inconsistent. It's, as I mentioned, you know, based on, on flawed assumptions about the nature of, of the problem. I think what I would like to see as well these days is, is even more of a concerted effort to foster multinational cooperation. As, as a right in, in, in battlegrounds, I mean, none of these problems are, you know, are solvable by any one country. Right. And so it's, it's very important for us to, 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 to create the right venues for us to come together, not only to, to work on a discrete issue or event together, but really to think uh, these, about these these complex challenges to frame them together, and then to apply our competitive advantages between our like minded countries and among our like minded countries, so that we do have a synergistic effect, and and so that we can build a better future for generations to come. And the last question, um, I think anybody who's listened to the podcast up to this point is going to think, "Wow, that is a a hard, tough list." And I wonder at the end of the day. If you're optimistic 
or if you're pessimistic that we're going to get this right going forward? Michael, I'm, I'm optimistic about it. I'm optimistic about it, even as we emerge from triple this triple crisis, right, of, of the pandemic, the recession associated with it, and, and the divides in our society laid bare by George Floyd's murder and, and the protests and civil unrest that, that followed it. You know, I think what's great about our democracy is we are self-correcting. The American people have a say in how they're governed. They can demand better. And the reason I wrote Battlegrounds is I think if, if the American people understand these challenges, they will demand a, a, a better foreign policy from our elected leaders. You know, our founders knew that our democracy was going to require continuous nurturing. It's still true today. And I believe that we do have significant problems at home, but we also have to confront these challenges abroad because we know, we know from the COVID-19 pandemic that, that problems that develop abroad can only be dealt with at an exorbitant price once they reach our shores. So the, the argument in Battlegrounds is, is, is an argument for sustained engagement with the world. The book is Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. The author is H.R. McMaster. General, thank you very much for joining us today. Michael, thank you for the privilege of being with you, and thanks for your service. Thank you very much. That was H.R. McMaster. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.